In this episode of the Voice of Procurement podcast, I speak to Dr. Claire Metvin O'Brien of the Danish Institute for Human Rights. Claire argues that the current EU public procurement regime subordinates human rights to narrowly defined economic goals. For listeners who wish to further explore this important topic, UCC Library has a digital copy of Claire's new book, Public Procurement and Human Rights, Opportunities, Risks and Dilemmas for the State as Buyer. Listeners are also encouraged to check the EU Commission's latest guidelines on buying for social impact, which is available on europa.eu. How do you see the relationship between public procurement and human rights? Public procurement, um, the the buying by the state of the things it needs uh, to deliver um, the core services it provides to uh, citizens and others, has got a multifaceted um, relationship to human rights. Of course, um, the state has got human rights obligations to people in relation to education, health, housing, uh, for example. And um, public procurement is obviously a prerequisite to the state fulfilling um, those obligations to people. Um, At the same time, of course, public uh, procurement Um, can affect uh, people's human rights as workers, where uh, public buyers are buying goods and services from the marketplace, which um, may be produced in ways which have a negative impact on human rights. And we can think there of things like uh, labor exploitation and human trafficking, um, which uh, are, we know, implicated in... um, lower skilled uh, service delivery, um, for instance, things like um, catering, hospitality, um, cleaning, security, construction, even um, services uh, carry a risk of involvement in the European context of uh, labour exploitation. So we've got that local service delivery um, as an area of risk, um, but also in terms of global value chains where um, uh, products or commodities which end up in products which are bought by um, government uh, are produced also in ways which have serious uh, negative impacts on the workforce. And you might think there of, um, you know, any one or a number of types of um, products and commodities, electronic, uh, personal electronic items like laptops and iPhones, um, well-documented uh, issues of worker abuses and, and negative impacts in terms of health, health and safety, environment attached to those. You've got uh, basic foodstuffs and commodities, cocoa, uh, uh, coffee, uh, the fishery sector. Um, each, you know, we've increasingly become aware of how um, actually there are sort of systematic uh, in uh, risks affecting people uh, involved in the production of those uh, in recent times and uh, also in the healthcare sector, things like um, rubber glove manufacturer, um, surgical instruments, you know, specific studies have documented um, uh, both the current uh, implication of public buyers and in, in involvement through their suppliers and sub-suppliers um, of those, but also the positive impact um, that uh, public buyers can have in driving up uh, conditions for workers in those situations um, through mechanisms such as uh, collective 
um, collective introduction of minimum standards for suppliers, codes of conduct, and so on. So, in you know, there are uh, there is also that relationship between public procurement and human rights that it can really be a driver um, for uh, enhancing enjoyment of human rights both locally and and globally. Of course, you know, business government is not only buying from the biggest companies, but government is often buying from uh, small, medium-sized enterprises, um, enterprises who are not consumer-facing like the biggest companies are. And we know also that businesses who are you know, B2B and not consumer-facing are less far ahead with you know human rights implementation for a variety of reasons. And, and in your own research, Claire, you, you've point to a tension between the, the European social model and, I guess, existing procurement legislation. Would that be a fair interpretation? Yes. And of course, I approach this, you know, as a human rights lawyer and practitioner uh, rather than a procurement um, lawyer and practitioner, both um, how European Union um, procurement law is set up in its, you know, finer details, and also how um, that procurement uh, law framework has been interpreted, both judicially and in the scholarship. Um, uh, there are do seem to be clear tensions between um, the the values that are given priority in. Um, interpreting and, and applying EU procurement law ha, or have historically been given priority and the EU's uh, commitments both to human rights internationally um, and at home and, and actually the very clear legal frameworks uh, that apply to human rights inside the European Union in terms of European conventional human rights, European Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, so it's hard to see at the moment that the that those are actually um, being applied in a coherent way and it seems that there probably has been a systematic um, uh, favoring of market integration and, and competition uh, directed values over and above actually workers um, fundamental rights to have their um, dignity and uh, equality and, and safety uh, protected in, in the workplace. A couple of the, the sort of old chestnuts um, in this uh, area would be this Sweden's county councils. Um, there's a great chapter uh, uh, telling the story of the development of the Swedish county council's work um, uh, on integrating social considerations in, in their procurement practice in our book uh, by Pauline uh, Gottberg. Um, uh, and they have uh, really, I think, probably pioneered um, a collaborative approach across the whole body of uh, county councils at the national level where they've pooled resources. Um, uh, so by each, you know, contributing a little in terms of resources, they've been able to establish um, real capacity at the national level to develop their knowledge and their practice in terms of um, developing uh, common, as I say, code of conduct, common contract clauses that they can all apply, uh, um, and also implementing a program of sort of follow-up um, inspections and social audits. So, you know, things that would be really too, would really be too expensive for any one 
an individual local authority to apply. They have been uh, able to apply for their shared supply base um, through cooperation. So this is a you know exciting and very optimistic um, example. Um, and I'd also say that the, the Scottish government's got a, I think quite a, a, a also innovative and really integrated sort of holistic model for procurement where um, they are knitting together their commitments on um, uh, of course, green, but also uh, social and around especially labor exploitation, human trafficking um, issues with the, a general broader commitment to sustainable procurement uh, in the context of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. So I guess maybe net, network level initiatives have the leadership, the drive, the, as you said, shared expertise to, to change how things are done. Definitely. Mm. Um you know, pooling of knowledge, uh, harvesting best practices from uh, from others, um, and uh, yeah, anything you can do to sort of promote um, dissemination of of good practices, I think is really key. And the EU could certainly do more, um, as could uh, most national procurement authorities do more in this area through you know dedicated initiatives, just to provide people with that space. Um, to to talk and, and share um, uh, the burden of of uh, implementing these because um, yeah because the reality of course for people working at local authority level people working in central government departments is that you know it's it's uh, there's too much there for anyone to lift alone mm. um, but but together um, you know it's really one of those cases where a burden shared is halved and. Um, um, uh, you know, more can be done. It's well acknowledged, uh, you know, I think out there that um, uh, the, the the legal frameworks can have a sort of chilling effect on people's um, uh, spirit of innovation in this area. People have been apprehensive because of the significant, you know, costs of different kinds that can be attracted, you know, by doing something new, which um, is perceived rightly or wrongly to be um, unfair uh, to, to to tenderers or in somehow not fully aligned with the existing rules. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely more can be done to, to build confidence um, that actually, you know, uh, innovation in this area is permitted. And Claire, just finally, can I ask you about the, it's not just public procurement, of course, there was a study by uh, Trinity College looking at benchmarking uh, guiding principles on, on business and human rights in the private sector. Correct. Um, it's, it's everyone's responsibility to push uh, human rights, isn't it? Not just, well, I guess the public sector can take the lead, but... Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, the, these uh, snapshots of uh, corporate engagement with and implementation of, of you know human rights principles like the Trinity study um, are really useful in um, yeah, highlighting you know to business but also those who buy from businesses um, the current uh, gaps um, and sh shortfalls um, many you know lar of the largest companies worldwide have now got clear policy statements um, uh, of support for human rights and to do due diligence themselves um, and to cascade that 
commitment through the supply base um, and through other business relationships, um, you know, that's really good and great progress from where we would have been, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Of course, the next step is, uh, you know, translating that into um, changes in policy buying practices and, you know, all the other areas of corporate policy um, and government as buyer can, you know, help to accelerate uh, that change, uh, again, just through communication and dialogue, um, highlighting to, to companies that these are topics of concern and interest. That in itself does have a really positive impact. So we haven't, you know, seen specific human rights guidance at member state level, except, you know, now, uh, very lately in well, in a couple of cases, uh, Scottish government, I, I mentioned uh, Scottish procurement policy note. So there's, you know, there's there was important progress, but um, people, it, it, the challenges weren't really squarely faced or acknowledged. And I think the first step is to acknowledge, you know, look, there are some contradictory commitments here in terms of market integration, <clears throat> cross-border tendering. Um and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole package that goes with that of protections uh, for tenderers and prospective tenderers and the sorts of measures that you um, would want to be, you would want, you know, to enable buyers to apply in order to uh, incentivize um, uh, tenderers to do the right thing and to act sustainably and responsibly, which at the same time, you know, the EU and all our member state governments have acknowledged is really the direction that, you know, as a bloc, we need to go. Um, Also in our own interests, Mm. uh, in terms of climate change, uh, not only, but also, you know, a a socially sustainable economic model, um, which doesn't dislocate uh, or exploit uh, workers from within union or outside. So, you know, these things, these are, uh, these should be consistent objectives. Um, it's just a question of finding, you know, the ways of making sure that in practice, people are able to uh, be holistic uh, in in meeting them. Equally, I, I think, yeah, this may, may be something of interest for your uh, listeners. Um What's very much being talked about at the moment, and I don't think we'll see it happen this year, it could maybe become a legislative proposal next year or the, the following, um, would be a European Union directive on mandatory due diligence for businesses. So um, the French uh, uh, Parliament in the last couple of years adopted legislation defining an obligation for large companies to to do due diligence. And if they don't do it or they fail to do it um, and it results in actual harm uh, to individuals, that becomes uh, the basis of a claim, you know, in tort uh, for the company with real, you know, money damages attached as a possibility. Um, and besides that, there's scope for administrative enforcement of the duty to due diligence, publish a due diligence plan and so forth. So questions that this raises for procurement law uh, at the EU level are, OK, how does how will this articulate with procurement law? Uh, would public buyers themselves, large public buyers, would they be subject to similar obligations? Um, um, or, you know, at least would, for instance, public buyers be able to use failure to comply with uh, due diligence obligations um, at member state level, but under a directive, would that 
also then become a permissible basis for exclusion or for, you know, um, uh, other kinds of less preferential treatment of prospective uh, suppliers to government. Um, and as I said, you know, we had these symbolic steps in the 2014 directives around, um, you know, mandatory exclusions, uh, based on failure to meet sort of minimum social obligations and also around, you know, child and forced labor. But, um, you know, to what extent have those been relied on? I think if we look across the EU, which no one has done, to find out in how many instances um, those uh, exclusions, the possibility to use those exclusions have actually been relied on, I think we'll find close to zero. Um, you know, final being convicted for a company or you know, comp- senior company personnel being uh, finally uh, convicted, you know, by a court from which there's no appeal of such an offence is a very rare occurrence. You know, you there may be other kinds of sus- documentation or suspicion, but actually being convicted for those offences. Um, is a very rare occurrence, given all the difficulties that attach to, you know, successfully prosecuting labor exploitation. Um, you know, I think we have to take a hard look at procurement law and ask if it's really doing it, doing what we want it to do. Mm. Um, you know, if we collectively have got an interest in uh, stamping out labor exploitation, which carries all kinds of social consequences, you know, also for local authorities um, in terms of displacing, you know, work from uh, the formal marketplace, uh, you know, and and jobs which should be there um, for people to work and legitimately become part of, you know, black economy, um, then then we have to make, you know, then we have to change it uh, from where we are now. Market integration is also an you know, a valid objective which we have a common interest in, but it's not the only objective of, of you know, of the community or uh, the member states that comprise it.